Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Inside Britain's often decaying prison system languish an increasing number of Muslim inmates. Prisoners were converting because Islam was seen as like the underdog religion, the fashionable, radical, outsider gang. And when they're in jail, they can be easy targets for Islamist extremists who follow a distorted form of the religion. Several prisoners had converted under immense physical and psychological pressure who feared being seen to eat a bacon sandwich. He said, if you eat a bacon sandwich, you'll get beaten up. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, from jail to jihad, nearly. The story of one inmate we know only as Jack and how he was radicalised inside a UK prison. Earlier this month, a terrorist inmate who wore a fake suicide vest and used a makeshift knife to stab a prison officer repeatedly was convicted of attempted murder at the Old Bailey and sentenced to 21 years in prison. Rustram Ziamani was already serving a lengthy sentence for plotting to behead a soldier in 2015. The attack has raised questions over the radicalisation of inmates while in prison. In today's episode... We'll take you inside the world of radicalised prisoners through the eyes of another former inmate we're calling Jack. What happens in 2016 is Jack is transferred to Woodhill Prison near Milton Keynes. Sean O'Neill is the Times' chief reporter and has been following Jack's story for several months. He's on his third day there. He goes to Friday prayers and he is sitting waiting for the official prison imam to arrive to begin the service. And here's two guys behind him saying to him, basically, I haven't seen you before. What unit are you on? He turns round and he sees these two men. The two men, Jack would later learn, were Simeon Nichols and Brustrom Ziamani. One of them is a sort of swaggering, mixed-race young man. The other one is a young black guy. He says they have a real presence, especially the first guy who speaks has a real aura about him. They say to him, right, basically, you're with us, come with us. And when the imam arrives and Friday prayers start, this guy, who he later knows to be Simeon Nichols, stands up and conducts a rival service in the prison prayer room, just alongside him, but in complete competition with the official imam and intimidating the official imam. Instead, this guy, who is basically preaching a a kind of 
Islamic State brand of Islam, is allowed to say what he wants to say in the chaplaincy. So the two guys are speaking at exactly the same yeah, time? that's what we understand. Yeah. And this Simeon Nichols is... In what way is he different from what the imam is saying? He's just louder, more intimidating. He's one of the brothers. He's one of the gang. He's one of the credible sort of bosses in the prison. And did Jack get any sense of how the other prisoners there were taking it? He basically says nobody bats an eyelid. And really significantly, none of the prison staff seem to intervene. Nobody says, right, we have an official prison imam. That's the way things should be. Who is Jack? Jack is in his early 20s now. He's about 24, 25. As I understand it, converted to Islam really for show as part of his gang activities. And he was imprisoned to do with a drug gang. Beyond that, we can't really say. He's from a large town in the southeast of England, but we have undertaken to protect his identity, I think as much for his own safety as anything else. What kind of gang was Jack in? Jack was a member of a gang which seems to have been led by young men of Somali heritage, but has been heavily involved in the drugs trade, violence around the drugs trade, county lines, operations, that kind of thing. How did the Times get involved in the story of Jack? The story of Jack comes to us through a young freelance who we'd never worked with before called Matthew Bradley. But on the 27th of November last year, we got a, a phone call through to the night news desk. The night news editor picked it up and forwarded it to me. And the date 27th of November is significant because two days after the attacks happen on London Bridge, Usman Khan kills Jack Merritt and Saskia Jones at Fishmongers Hall at a prison rehabilitation event. London Bridge again, where a sombre night follows the dark afternoon. Metropolitan police say a man has been detained and a number of people injured after a stabbing at London Bridge. I believe that it may have involved uh, a knife that uh, people were attacked with a knife on London Bridge. The press association is reporting that station staff at Monument Station claim that five people have been injured in this attack on London Bridge. Uh, the tube station has been closed. Khan is someone who has pretended to be rehabilitated in prison, has abided his time, has clearly gamed the system and come out and use this opportunity and tries to repeat the London Bridge attacks of 2017. Straps knives to his arms, puts on a fake suicide vest, and as we well know now, is restrained by members of the public and shot dead by the police. These are the last seconds of the struggle as officers pull away a member of the public before opening fire. And as it happens, this happens in full view of the Times office. Yeah, just across the bridge from the Times office. And my colleague Richard Ford broke the story the next day that Khan was wearing a tag, had been recently released from prison. We were the first to, to break that news. And suddenly the story that Matthew has brought us in about Jack's experience in prison becomes an awful lot more relevant. However, we can't run it straight away. We don't have enough information to verify what Jack is saying. We have to do as much due diligence as we possibly can, and that takes quite a lot of time. But round about mid-December, we were able to establish that 
the key figures in Jack's story, the names he mentioned, were indeed people who had been in the relevant prison at the relevant time. And that's a big factor in just saying, right, there's good foundation for this story. So back to that first scene in Jack's early days in Woodhill Prison, the rival to the official imam, Simeon Nichols, exerts authority over young Muslim men inside the walls. But he's joined by another man who takes it upon himself to teach Jack about what he thinks it means to be a true Muslim. A man who has just been convicted for attempting to kill a prison officer while wearing a fake suicide vest and who believes in a very warped and distorted form of religion. Brustum Ziamani comes into his cell tells him he's going to be his religious teacher, takes him off to... Just informs him, I'm going to be your emir. Yeah, I'm going to be your guy. I'm going to teach you the fundamentals of of proper Islam and takes him off to Nichols' cell. And for about three months, he is educated or told how to think like these guys think. Three months? A completely disciple of Anjem Chowdhury, the the leader of Al-Mahajirun. Why is this guy even in our country? What's he doing here? To dominate the whole world by Islam, including Britain, that is my ambition. One of the most notorious hate preachers in Britain, who was recently sentenced to 10 years for supporting ISIS. Why are we not able to throw these people out? Radicalisation is calling for the Sharia nowadays. Radicalisation is exposing the British government. He hates Britain. He hates Western life. He wants to encourage terrorism. I believe the British government are the main radicalising force for people going abroad and fighting alongside their brothers. Ziamani was jailed in, um, I think, 2015 for plotting to behead a soldier. He wanted to find a soldier and repeat uh, the killing of Lee Rigby. Bruce Tom Ziamani only became a Muslim last spring. Very quickly, he embraced radical Islam with its extremist ideology. And he had gone out with a machete and a a black Islamic State-style flag. He was also carrying a hammer to use on his chosen victim. He had been mixing with members of the banned terrorist organisation Al-Muhajirun. And was caught red-handed by police with these weapons. What did Jack's training involve? It involves basically being lectured, being hectored, being told what to think, being told what's right and wrong. But he was also given access to literature, which I find extraordinary, was in our our prison system. He had access to a USB stick with the lectures of Sheikh Abdullah Al-Faisal, who was jailed for hate speech and was deported from Britain, but somehow or other his speeches are still finding their way into our prisons. He had uh, access to Milestones, the book by Syed Qutub, who is one of the founders of the whole modern jihadist movement. Now, when you began to look outside just Jack... What did you discover about how prisoners are being recruited by Islamic extremists? In 2016, um, the government published a summary of a report by Ian Aitchison. Ian is a former prison governor who was asked to examine the problem of radicalisation and extremism in our prisons and in the probation system. I think the unpublished report has something like 68 recommendations. The unpublished report? There's a kind of high security version of this report and a summary was published. So there are a series of recommendations, uh, only some of which have been implemented. Aitchison himself says he has struggled to find out how many have been implemented. But in the report, it was talking about his estimate of how many people have been radicalised. He talks about um, 
seen forced conversions. He talks about extremism on the wings. You know, these things are reported to him by prisoners. But as we dig into this, one of the documents I came upon was a report prepared by some Cambridge academics, again at the request of the Ministry of Justice back in 2009. And that talked about how several prisoners had converted under immense physical and psychological pressure. They interviewed prisoners who had been forced to convert to Islam on their wing and who feared being seen to eat a bacon sandwich. They said, if you eat a bacon sandwich, you'll get beaten up. But they also found a phenomenon where significant numbers of prisoners were converting because Islam was seen as like the underdog religion. It, it was alternative, you know, the fashionable, radical, outsider gang, the gang that was challenging the system. It was cool. It was cool. It was rebellious. It was the thing to do. Yeah. And a lot of guys who were jailed for, you know, crimes that had nothing to do with terrorism were converting to Islam or pretending to convert to Islam because they wanted to be part of the best gang. Did Aitchison or anybody have any idea of the... They knew it was happening, but did they have any idea of the scale? I don't think you can quantify exactly how many people have converted to extremists or something, but there are quite startling figures of the number of people who now identify themselves as practising Muslims in prisons. So back in 2002, 8% of prisoners said they were Muslim. At the end of 2019, there were 13,400 Muslim prisoners, and that's around about 16% of the total prison population in England and Wales, and the prison population is at a record level. In England and Wales generally, the Muslim population is 4%. Now, one of the things in one of the stories that we ran talked about how Jack was involved in a Sharia court in prison. What is a Sharia court? A Sharia court properly constituted is a court where Islamic religious law is adjudicated. And in prison? In prison, it's a kangaroo court (laughs) set up by hard men who think they can impose their will on other prisoners. It has no religious legitimacy at all. Jack tells it as he's called to, uh, I think, a Ziamani cell, and there are two young men sat on the floor. Nichols is presiding over Esharia court, and the allegation is that these two young men, during Ramadan, had been drinking illegal prison-distilled alcohol. I think the court in session is quite short. Nichols asks Ziamani and Jack, how do you find them? They say guilty. And what will the punishment be? The punishment is to administer a beating. Jack says that one of them had his eye almost closed with the bruises around his eye. And Jack participated? He participated in that. Because he felt obliged to? I think he felt he had to go along with what these two guys, his mentors, required of him. Did he have any sense that this had happened before? Yes, because he talks of Ziamani patrolling the wing and pretending to be the Sharia policeman, the, the religious policeman. Why did these guys put up with it? I think because Ziamani and Nichols, they come across as particularly strong-willed, influential and quite violent characters. So the kind of person you'd normally be yeah. afraid of in prison. And I think with, with Jack, what you have is a young man who's, for the sake of self-preservation, is going along with this. How come they were able to administer such punishments in a prison? 
I mean, you see, you know, films of American prisons, anything goes, but you tend to imagine that in a British prison it wouldn't be like that. I mean, we think of the state of the prison estate, you know, it's overcrowded, it's been extremely short-staffed, it's decrepit, suicides are at a record rate. I mean, it's in a pretty awful condition and it never seems to get any better and it never seems to be a priority, does it? I've been at this game a long time. One of the first things I did on a national newspaper was interview... Stephen Tumum, quite a renowned prison reformer who was chief inspector of prisons. And he lamented the state of our prisons back in the early 90s. He was succeeded by people like David Ramsbottom, who lamented the state of our prisons. Peter Clark, a former head of counter-terrorism at Scotland Yard, was, until earlier this year, chief inspector of prisons and holds a similar view to his predecessors as chief inspectors. He laments the appalling state of our prisons. He constantly, in report after report... And one of the biggest failings has been the loss of experience and numbers of prison staff. So under Chris Grayling, prison staff numbers were cut back drastically. the minister, the former minister. The former Secretary of State for Justice. And there has been a recruitment drive started about three years ago. We've only just got back to the levels we were at of staff numbers in about 2010. So essentially this could happen because in British prisons now, lots of bad things can happen. I think lots of bad things do happen. You know, healthcare is terrible. The, the suicide rate is a national scandal and has been for a long time. And the state of the buildings, I mean, the, the National Audit Office said recently it needs something like 11 billion spent on new prisons and 900 million pounds spent on just maintaining the current squalid estate. And one net result of our situation in prisons is that there are prisons where Muslim extremists actually do rule part of the prison. I don't know if I would go as far as to say or think that I know as much as to say they rule part of the prison, but they certainly seem to have more um, freedom than we would expect they have. Well, we'd expect them to have none. Well, yeah, they seem to have more uh, licence to behave as they see fit with the authorities unwilling to curb them. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Search thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.
Le 14 juillet, 14th of July, symbol of freedom. We have breaking news tonight. At least 80 people are dead and dozens injured in a horrific attack in France. One witness calling the scene apocalyptic. Yeah, people were screaming, kids were crying, security guards were on their walkie-talkies. We were, we were so close. A lorry heads for the crowd. Witnesses spoke of how the vehicle swerved several times, maximizing the carnage. In July 2016, France suffered its third terrorist attack in less than 12 months, when a lone terrorist drove a large lorry into people gathered to watch the Bastille Day fireworks along the seafront of the southeastern city of Nice. By this stage, Jacques has moved to the cell next to Ziamani. He recalls uh, Ziamani that evening pounding on the wall between the cells and shouting at him to turn on his television. And he turns on the television and sees the, the coverage of the Nice attacks. And he can hear Ziamani cheering and celebrating next door. Jack says he felt absolutely horrified and, and sickened and couldn't understand how somebody could celebrate the loss of life on such a scale. The following morning, quite surreal, really, Ziamani arrives with a bag of Haribo sweets to celebrate the death of more than 80 non-believers and prostates himself in prayer on the floor of the cell. It's around about this time, I think, that Jack starts to feel really uncomfortable with this choice he's made. And, and at some point, a prison officer says to him, you're getting in with the wrong people, and he gets transferred, moved to another prison. But by this stage, Nichols and Ziamani have fallen out with one another, and one is identified as Al-Qaeda, and the other one is identified as ISIS, and they're kind of plotting attacks on each other at this stage. It's quite a surreal world in there. It is a surreal world, but... Presumably, both these figures are supposed to be subject to movements towards de-radicalisation. Well, you can't force anybody onto a de-radicalisation course. If they don't want to engage, they simply don't engage. And what we saw with Usman Khan is, even if you do engage, you can play the system. A 28-year-old was attending a conference on prisoner rehabilitation when he threatened to blow up the venue. He stabbed five people before running out to nearby London Bridge. Khan gets released... He's seen by some people as a model prisoner. He's assessed, when he comes out by the security service, as still a threat. So we could have at least three categories of people, people who just don't go on the courses. Yeah. And then you have people who can go on the courses and who are de-radicalised. I guess so. But who measures it? And then you have people who can go on the courses, pretend to be de-radicalised and aren't. Yeah. I mean, Ziamani's a really interesting character in this. He's a thread that runs through this. The reason this story became an important story for us was because we get this tip off just before the London Bridge attacks. That is followed up after the New Year by the Streatham attacks and also by an attack in Whitemore Prison, which is when two prisoners jump a prison officer from behind. They've got bladed homemade or home-fashioned instruments. They try to stab this prison officer... One of those attackers was Brustum Ziamani. Ziamani, our man who radicalised Jack, who influenced Jack, who celebrated the Nice attacks, who is not being de-radicalised in any way whatsoever, carries out a terrorist attack in a prison a month or so after the London Bridge attacks. Earlier this month, Ziamani was sentenced to a further 21 years to add to the 19 years he was sentenced to in 2015. 
Sean, what happened to Jack? Jack served his sentence. He's out. When we ran our first stories about this in December, he went a bit dark on us, stopped talking to us. I think he was nervous that he might be identified, that there might be some reprisal for him. But interestingly, after the Streatham attack, I called Matt, the, the freelance who brought the story, and I said, Matt, has Jack emerged again? And he said, well, funny enough, I was in the cinema last night and I got a text from him, first contact for two months. And basically he, he said, I knew the Streatham attacker. He was in prison with me. British police who shot dead a terrorist in South London have confirmed that the man had only recently been released from jail after serving a sentence for terrorism-related offences. Sudesh Aman, who in early February went charging down Streatham High Street, pursued by police surveillance officers, had been released from prison 10 days before, was still a, regarded as a very dangerous uh, and very committed terrorist. And Jack knew him? Jack knew him. I hear free shot and I see him how he dropped and he was alive for a good two, three minutes on the floor. But he had vest, that's where police tell everybody we have to move back in case if the blast go off. Uh, Jack said that when he was in prison with him, Aman spoke regularly of the plots he wanted to carry out. Uh, he had all sorts of ideas and one of his main ideas was to kill an MP. He wanted to do what the white guy did, I, he wanted to repeat the murder of Joe Cox. Who was killed by a right-wing extremist in 2016. Yeah. Um, how do we know that Jack isn't an extremist now? Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure he, he isn't. I've seen text messages, WhatsApp messages, after he left prison from people inside the prison and saying to him, we can help you travel to Syria, brother. And he goes, thanks, but no thanks. I don't want to live that life anymore. And he's basically said to us, I don't want anything to do with it anymore. I was playing along with it. How did the powers that be respond to the Times pieces? Did you get the impression that as a result of the stories we ran, somebody was actually going to do something? We know something is happening there. If you like, there are two strands. So after Usman Khan and Sudesh Aman, we have seen legislative action to deal with terrorist prisoners who are entitled under the law at the moment to automatic early release. So emergency legislation is being brought in to prevent their early release. No terrorist prisoner will be released without the parole board making an assessment of the threat they still pose. And we're fairly sure that under consideration as well is post-sentence detention orders. And this is a very controversial idea, but I believe is used in Australia, under which a terrorist prisoner can finish their sentence but could still be detained which is a kind of internment. And my understanding is Downing Street is taking this very seriously. But that is all about keeping people in the prison estate where we have identified there seems to be a major problem. When you were undertaking these investigations, do you remember feeling, gosh, that really surprises me? I thought I knew a lot, but I didn't know that. No. I've touched on the prison system in various ways, on and off over my career in national papers, which has gone on for far too long now, but nothing seems to improve in the prison system, to my mind. It is the forgotten piece, you know? People are locked away and they're forgotten about. I don't think we invest in them properly. I think 
part what we're seeing with uh, extremism and radicalization in prison is just one facet of a completely broken system and i think the much more tragic symbol of it is the suicide rate the suicide rate in our prisons is a national disgrace we all complain that you know, crime is rising violent crime is rising antisocial behavior is rising but the prison system should be playing a part in that and making sure people come out of prison in some way better than they went in. Punishment doesn't work unless it reforms someone. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Chief Reporter for The Times, Sean O'Neill. You can read more of Sean's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers were Edward Drummond and Ben Mitchell. Executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Nicola Rawfast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast. And now we're available on the Times Radio app, along with all the other podcasts from the Times. To download the app, search for Times Radio on your app store. See you again soon. Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.